Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast today. Well, I have the privilege today of having a conversation with a friend of mine, Dr. Matt Levering. He is James N. and Mary D. Perry, Jr., Chair of Theology at the University of St. Mary of the Lake. That's a long title. It's an important job. And Matt Levering is one of the brightest scholars I know working in Catholic theology in the United States today. We've worked together in the project known as Evangelicals and Catholics Together and in other contexts, and it's a great privilege to welcome you to the Beeson Podcast, Matt. Oh, thank you so much. Now, I want to begin by asking you to tell just a little bit about how you came to the faith and how you became a part of the Catholic Church. That's an interesting story. Well, you know, this was years ago, right right after college, or in the middle, I guess it was the middle of college, I began to search for, for God and for, um, I began to wonder, I was reading a lot of Walker Percy, and also I took a class on Dostoevsky, but it was really Walker Percy, that, that type of novel, and so I, I thought, gosh, you know, is there, is there meaning in life? Is, does God exist? And Walker Percy indicated to me that the Jewish people and Jesus, these were very important um, clues. I mean, that was, you know, Walker Percy, of course, you know, was a graduate of the university where I was attending, University of North Carolina. And you're from North Carolina. Yeah, I'm right? from North Carolina. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't have any creedal background, no background with the Bible. But I did have a sense that, I, I had a sense that life wasn't, you know, that there was, um, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't in a, I wasn't raised sort of without any kind of, I guess, any kind of spirituality is what I would say. There was a certain, I was raised in a, in a certain countercultural um, you know, within within um, Quaker, very politically act, activist Quaker context, um, where there was a strong sense that that you that you had a mission and that it wasn't just to blend in with the culture, mm. as it were. So that was part of the background. So then, when I was in college, kind of just thinking, well, does God exist? How do I even think about that? So um, so I set off to become a novelist after college. Like Walker Percy, yeah, like Walker Percy, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what happened was, I can write quickly, but not well. So I wrote a couple of drafts, something, and then I realized I realized the questions I'm asking won't be solved by fiction, mm. because um, the questions have to do with realities, you know, um, not just with my own um, imagination, but really with um, does does God exist? How do I how do I even ask that question? I can't I can't answer it through fiction. At least I, I felt I couldn't. Um, my wife was getting a master's at Duke. We both graduated. We got married in college at University of North Carolina. So she was getting master. So I went over to Duke Divinity School, and I just started. I just, I just started grabbing books off the shelf, and that was that was the key thing, really. And so from there, you became a Catholic theologian. How did that happen? Well, you know, I've always been someone who um, loved to read and write. My my father was a professor of history for um, many years. Just retired recently from Davidson, and um, so I knew I knew I loved the the work of the work of um, study. So as soon as I had that inner drive to, to learn about God, that was an easy an easy thing for me, really. Is, um, I didn't think about it as a career. I just thought about it as if I just had to learn about God and, and learn about Jesus. You know, as soon as I began to read some some books, um, you know, I read C.S. Lewis, I read Hansers and Balazar, read bunches of books. And so it was a search, really. It wasn't ever a career. 
Well, uh, that search has led you into some significant research and writing, and you've, you've written more than 20 books. I mean, mm. that's kind of amazing. You're still uh, kind of a young man. I mean, uh, you're not a teenager. Uh, I'm 46. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for 20 books, that's, that's a pretty young man. So, And they're, they're cutting-edge books. Uh, I won't read all the titles, but things like Scripture and Metaphysics, Biblical Natural Law, Engaging the Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, Proofs of God, uh, The Oxford Handbook of Sacramental Theology, Aristotle on Aquinas' Theology, on and on and on. This is not light stuff, Matt. This is deep, heavy, important stuff. Mm. where you're grappling with the rudiments of the faith at a deep level, a level that also has, I think, an output in spiritual formation for people. Mm. You seem to write with that in mind. You want what you do not simply to enrich the mind, but also to uh, refurbish the soul. Would that be correct? Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly right. And, and so I still think that one of, one of my favorite books that I ever was involved in writing while I was a co-author was called Holy People, Holy Land, A Theological Introduction to the Bible. And we did some, began with Genesis and ended with the book of Revelation. And, and it really was written for undergraduates. You know, but again, yeah, it's just giving people the, the whole story of, of um, creation and God's desire for intimacy with, with his people and, and everything else. So it was, I mean, that, that, that's really my goal is, is um, to be a theologian, but one who joins with others on, on a real quest for, for God and for um, union with God as, as God has given himself in, in Christ Jesus. Yeah. So that's the purpose. Now, one, one of the books that you've written that has really informed my own work a great deal is a, is a volume called Vatican II, Reception and Tradition. You've also written a book, The Reception of Vatican II. Uh, Vatican II was uh, an ecumenical council, as the Catholic Church understands it, that had a tr profound impact on the direction of uh, really Christian faith in the 20th century, continuing to, to today. Our listeners cover a wide variety of traditions, and some of them may know very little about Vatican II. Others will know a lot more. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about the story of Vatican II, how it came to be, and uh, what was really significant about it. Well, I think the story is um, you got to personalize these things somewhat. And so the, the life of Joseph Ratzinger is, is a very fine exemplar of for kind of understanding why Vatican II came to be and what it, what it intended. So Ratzinger, you know, who became Pope Benedict XVI, right. you know, he was, he was fairly young at the time. He was born in, in um, 1927. So he's pretty young, you know, when they call the council. Council begins in 1962. And so he would be um, 35, but he was he was fully involved. He was one of the leaders because Heritage, yeah, right. because yeah, that's right because his mind is he's such a genius. But but what happened was is that the church essentially was um, attempting to respond to um, in a deeper way um, to issues raised by um, you might say historical consciousness or you might say um, theological liberalism. You know where um, where the whole the whole issue of doctrine or of Jesus, in questions about Jesus, you know doubt doubts about um, his historicity, you know questions maybe that maybe Christianity should be re reformulated in terms of a experiential, not dogmatic. So that was kind of that's theological liberalism. That's part of the background of Vatican II. What you're describing, Matt, is mm. what I would understand and recognize as an important stream of Protestant theology. Protestant liberalism accommodated Jesus and, and basically uh, 
had a very loose understanding of, of the scriptures. But are you saying this is also present within the Catholic Church? Oh, yeah, very, very much. It, it um, you know, began to really strongly manifest itself. I mean, it's these type of very, so very much, so, that'd be my answer, but but certainly by by the early 1900s, um, it was really evident that this was a, um, a potentially quite powerful stream within the Catholic Church. There were different reasons why that was so, but but so how the um, the church responded though was um, was very strongly um, negative, very strongly repressive. And so what happened then would be um, so Joseph Ratzinger, his his teacher, his teacher, his Bible teacher, you know, would have come under pressure and then would have communicated to, to young Joseph Ratzinger this this sense that he wasn't able to really able to do his research. This, these professors of Joseph Ratzinger, you know, a lot of them experienced um, a very strong repression, as it were. Now, the repression was caused in part by, um, I mean, the church, the church um, didn't really feel like it knew quite how to answer. Um, so, so it so one thing it did was try to work on this, its seminaries and you know get its seminaries um, so that the theologians would have a strong formation that would uh, that would protect them from going down this path of theological liberalism, and so that was where neo Thomism also that was part of the purpose. They had a strong philosophical formation that would, would protect them from Immanuel Kant and sort of and sort of basic uh, moves that you make when you enter into theological liberalism. That was the idea. Mm-hmm. By the time, though, that uh, Joseph Ratzinger, when he was in seminary, you know, this was the you know, late 40s or whatever, you know, the professors had this memory. They had this memory of um, people being, um, of themselves uh, undergoing this kind of, they felt it was repression. And, and then they also, um, there were a number of young theologians, younger ones, um, a number of Jesuit, Dominican, you know, very devout priests um, who were, suggesting that that there was a way to there was a middle ground as it were there was a way to take up the questions being raised by theological liberalism and to answer them in a deeper historically informed way that would um, retain the, the dogmatic um, truths of scripture and faith in Jesus but but would also have a deeper historical credibility and historical awareness and a biblical awareness and so there was also at the same time uh, movements to reform the liturgy, um, very strong movement to, um, toward ecumenism led by um, Father Congar. Mm-hmm. And there was a desire to revisit some of the aspects of Trent that were the Council of Trent that would, were seen as um, very strongly negative and causing unnecessary separations between, between Christians. All that kind of came together. It was a generational thing. You had the leadership of Pope John the Twenty Third, but it was really a generational thing of young theologians, as they entered their forties and fifties. People like um, Henri de Lubac, Yves Congar, a lot of them had gone through um, in the nineteen fifties. Also, some some silencing. They've been silenced, as happens though in institutions. You know, they they'd been silenced when they were younger theologians, and now that they were now they were the mature theologians, the the generation above them um, was retiring and and so forth. So they were they were the leaders now, and so you you can bet that they were they they were going to have they were going to have their day, and that that's really that's the root of Vatican II really is that they this renewal movement coming up suggesting that to respond to to theological liberalism we we um, can take a more nuanced um, tack. 
Now, Vatican II is recognized as an ecumenical council, so could there be a Vatican III? Oh, yeah, def definitely that could. Yeah, I'm, of course, of course, there's so many bishops now that I don't know where they would fit them all in. <laughs> I mean, St. Peter's was pretty filled back in 1962, oh, it was. wasn't it, with all the bishops in the world then who came together. So I mention that because it raises a question I wish you would comment on in terms of development. Some people say to me, you know, um, if the Catholic Church could just take back what it said back at Trent or wherever it was, where it said something that we just can't accept, then maybe we could find a way forward. But it seems to me the Catholic Church works on change in a more developmental way. Uh, that was a term, of course, that was made very uh, popular by John Henry Newman in the 19th century, the development of Christian doctrine. Uh, could you say a little bit about the concept of development and how that impacted Vatican II, how it's understood in the light of Vatican II? Well, that, that, yeah, that's very important because um, a number of the theologians, you know, like Henri de Lubac and Congar, um, these were, they, they'd written so much on development. Um, that it was one of their, essentially it was their answer to theological liberalism as a proper understanding of, of development. So, of course, you, you have the, um, the deposit of faith, and the deposit, the deposit is given in, in Scripture, which is then handed on. And so that, that deposit um, you know, reveals to us God's, God's truth that is for our salvation. But then you have, then you have um, the church's effort to, and, and it's, it's a very messy effort often, the church's effort really to understand the, the Word of God and that it's it can be much more um, conflictual than we would really want it to be, um, but we do trust that the Holy Spirit is. Um, well, we we know history is a, a messy place, but we know that the the Spirit is is in charge mm -hmm. uh, ultimately. So so then you you have things like um, as they as they work as they do Trinitarian dogma there in the fourth century. Um, you know, is Christ is the is the Son the consubstantial or equal with the Father? Is the Son fully divine? So, so this is how it's these type of development questions. But of course, they become more pressing as time comes on, goes on, because um, then you have things like um, how many sacraments are there, mm -hmm. and things that become divisive. Um, you know, later, later in the in the in you know fifteenth, sixteenth century, of course. Um, but but that's that's kind of the, that's what development is. But but essentially. The, the good part of development, I think, is one of the good parts of, of the um, idea of development is that the church can revisit elements where in the past, um, for example, it was really seen, I think, by, by Catholics that, for, for example, that just the Protestants just simply had no, no relation to, to the church. I mean, the Church of God was, was just simply end of story the Catholic Church and so Protestants were simply out, and therefore they were not not united to Christ. And just think about that. That's I mean, it's a very grim and, and sad um, understanding. And so it, it of course it, it made it it's a very it's a mistaken view because you know we we do we see the, um, the shared elements. I mean, it's like anybody who goes across the street and talks to their neighbor. Um, you see these deep shared elements of, of scripture and faith in the in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so on both Catholic and Protestant sides, we can have a, um, a you know we can have a, a deep a deep appreciation for each other, mm -hmm. 
as Christians. And so that was, that was then an important part of the development that you see in Vatican II. That was a crucial development there yeah. as they began to understand that, um, that there were degrees of, of participating in, in the fullness of the church. And of course, the fullness here meaning simply the divine gifts that Jesus willed for his church. That's what, when you say the fullness of the church, well, we know that doesn't happen until, until the eschaton. But the fullness here, as I'm using it, means the, the divine gifts that Jesus willed for his church, um, the gifts of truth and of, of sacrament and of order and, and so forth. So we, there's degrees of there's degrees of sharing in in this on the Catholic view, but this was a this was a view that de, that developed, mm -hmm. you know. So it, it really it involved theologians going back and saying, well, wait a second, the the, um, the Catholic view of the Church is this, but this doesn't this doesn't exclude separated brethren, you know, in the way that it would it was thought to have. So Protestant yeah. churches are called ecclesial communities now. Uh, in a way that would not have really been accepted in an earlier generation, perhaps that term. That, that's right. If 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 the Catholic Church is speaking formally, you know, formally and saying in some sort of um, magisterial document of the highest order, um, yeah, then you would use the term ecclesial communities, but in, in a way of indicating a strong participation in the reality of of the Church um, through the gifts that Jesus has given. You know, now now it doesn't. In terms like if you're just talking informally, you just say the, the Presbyterian Church down the road, you know, yeah. you know. But but the formal sense is the purpose there is to um, is really ecumenical. Honestly, it's it's intended to indicate a distinction between the unity that Catholics share with Orthodox and, and sister churches. Yeah, that's right. And and one of the fundamental purposes is not is not to offend the Orthodox because. Um, you, you have to keep all these distinctions, so there it is. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you, you mentioned Benedict, who was a paratus in Vatican II, attached to one of the bishops of Germany as his theological expert and advisor. Also, John Paul II was there. He was not John Paul II then, of course. He was a bishop of Krakow. Uh, talk a little bit about the these two great Vatican II popes, um, John Paul II and Benedict, uh, both of whom later became Pope in their own right, and then Francis, our current Pope. It seems to me that there are three very distinct uh, charisms, in a way, that these uh, three great uh, leaders have had within the Catholic Church and beyond. Could you say a little bit about that as you see the, the three figures, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis? Well, I, I see these three as very much shaped by the um, communities from which they come. So, so when you think of um, John Paul II, Karl Vatia, you you think of um, his experience growing up in Poland, um, with, and and as a within a deep Catholic um, culture, he he received a very strong Catholic formation, but he he also, I mean, he was he was just an, he was just a shining star. Mm -hmm. he, he really was. He was one of those people who sort of attracted other people and also who had a very quick penetration into um, into kind of the the great things that were going on you know he was always sort of there there with the great things as they were going on as it were and a leader and so he and he was an intellectual he was a 
A great mind. An athlete, a dramatist. Yeah, everything. <laughs> yeah, he was really everything. And but it really does his experience, I think, um, of growing up with the church under under repression, the church under attack. To me that that was that's definitive for him because he, he was no he was no reactionary. He was the church under attack, but the church also had to um, had to show young people had to had to compete, as it were, with um, that wasn't that hard to compete with the communists, but but it really had to show young people that this was attractive, this was really good, and so he he was a master at doing that, and I think that was um, that's his background. So he's he's constantly aware of the church under attack. He's constantly aware of that in all his writings. I think. He's um, constantly holding up Jesus Christ and, and, and the radical way of life, the, um, the sign of contradiction. That's one of uh, his favorite phrases, you know, that there is a sign of contradiction, but it's a joyful sign. It's a, right? So, and that his background, I think, really um, influenced what, what he gave to the whole church. And then, then of course, with, with um, Benedict, you also have a, a fascinating background because he, he, to my mind, he represents just the, the fruitfulness of, of a lot of um, German theology that, um, that was deeply rooted in um, real piety. So for him, you, you think of people like Romano Guardini mm-hmm. and many others, many others like that who can be named. But essentially, they were, they were preachers, but they were these preachers who also also were geniuses and sort of had read everything and had written a book on almost everything. <laughs> but they loved Jesus, so they they all write lives of Jesus, and then they would. Um, but they could write about anything, and it was just it was a, a tremendously fruitful intellectual culture that he was he he sort of entered into, and then he himself was a genius. Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm speaking of him in the in the past tense. He's of course still still a genius, but. I think then that he really brought that to the um, to the church, and he did it um, both at the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith when he was working with John Paul, where he would write a lot of the stuff that John Paul said. As, as you probably know, he would write a good deal. And then also, I mean, he was through all the books that he wrote during those years as, when he was a cardinal, and then also as Pope. His books on know, Jesus are His books on Jesus. And the reason his books on Jesus are so important because is because again he's but in his mind you know he's got he's a, this German background so he's always answering the German theological liberals yeah you see but he's doing it from that pious um, learned he's always got the German theological liberals on their mind on his mind the um, Catholic ones um, people I'm talking about liberal liberal theology or theological liberalism he's got him on his mind and he's he's going to answer him and a key a key point really with the whole um that's raised by the whole theological liberalism thing is did Jesus actually reveal anything and can we can we know him you know can can we have any real contact with Jesus or is it all kind of shrouded by um by layers either layers of tradition layers of of um church inventions or layers of um kind of uh, inventions that the evangelists themselves were essentially oral traditions or just layers of the evangelists inventing stuff. Can we have any contact with this Lord and what did he reveal? And so that's always on Benedict's mind. You know, the thing that's so impressed me about Benedict, who I think uh, is maybe the greatest theologian to have become the Pope since Uh, Leo in the early church. 
I mean, he wasn't a remarkable, is a remarkable thinker, Pope uh, Emeritus. The thing that really is compelling about him uh, is the way in which he recovers so much of the Augustinian tradition. In some ways, he's the great Augustinian theologian of our age. Well, you know, I love Augustine. I have a book called The Theology of Augustine, which is written for um, undergraduates. Uh, right. No, that is that's true. I, I think I think to some degree you you can't be a great theologian unless you recover Augustine. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I agree yeah, with that. Yeah, I think that's true. Now, now remember, I, I say that um, thinking that Augustine has a lot of shares a lot with the Greek fathers. So I'm not. Yeah. Um, so if someone just read the Greek fathers, and they recover the Greek fathers. And have a lot well, of it. That's right. That's what I would think. And yeah. we knew one of us would say Augustine is infallible, that he's no, without no. Uh, error in his ways. We all are fallible creatures, but there's an insight there into the grace of God, I think, that is oh, yeah. so palpable and important in our time. Augustine, he's he's the greatest, of course. He's he, um, Everything he touched, just reading his sermons... I've been reading his sermons lately, and just just doing that, it's it's just incredible. But you can you you see it also with Pope Benedict because everything that Pope Benedict he can just be talking, and it's already publishable. Yes, and he it's so Augustine was like that. Yes, the lucidity, the clarity, yeah, the lucidity, yeah. and Augustine remember always has scripture in mind. Everything is always a um, a dialogue with scripture. So you, you can argue with Augustine, but then you're going to need to be arguing with Scripture at the same time. Yeah. And so that was how Benedict's mind, yeah. um, Joseph Ratzinger, his mind was formed like that, with Scripture at the very core, um, through Augustine, I think. Yeah. What about Pope Francis? Well, he, he, he also really is, is shaped by the community from which he comes. And of course, of course, he's Italian in a way, you know. But I, I forget, is it first generation Argentinian? Uh, I know that he's... Um, Italian, not too far back in his, yeah. but but so coming coming growing up in Argentina, um, you know, of course you have you have the terrible um, class divide, you know, where, I mean, it's I've never I've never been to Argentina, but I have been to other countries, and I suspect there's some similarities where where here in America, oftentimes you have everything segregated into neighborhoods, and so I so people you might not even see a poor person. Well, in Argentina, I suspect um, these these class divides are much more um, present to you. You know, you if you grow up in a middle class household, you'll have servants, and and so forth. And and I just think um, so. He was certainly shaped by the experience of um, liberation theology, of Jesuit theology. Um, you know, I mean, there's there's no question in my mind that um, a lot of things that he's bringing to the church. You know, come come from that background of, of being a Christian, and and yet looking around, and realizing that um, that a lot of times, like the letter James says, a lot of times we Christians have been, uh, you know, really just haven't cared so much for for the poor in our midst. You know, we assume that the poor are always with us, and and just that we have we don't really care, you know. Um, a lot of times you, you'll find that um, in terms of the, the priestly ministry, you know, it's the people who are middle class are, are right there receiving a lot of the priestly ministry. But, but the poor, the poor neighborhoods just have a, a lot less access mm -hmm. to sacraments and to, to the preaching of the gospel. 
I mean, they're not being evangelized. And so this was the this was his experience, I think, growing up. It's this mm -hmm. sense that we um, we have failed um, in some. Of course, I I don't know that much about his background, but I I just suspect that I, I suspect that his um, he's bringing to us a number of the of the um, fruits of you know the better fruits of, of liberation theology, um, which of course is a wide spans a wide um, number of approaches. Yeah, and his his version is an Argentinian version, which is um, different from some of the other versions. But but I think I think we can see that there are um, connections. You know, we're recording this today on, on this is the day of Pentecost, mm. and when we celebrate, uh, remember the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but uh, Pope uh, Francis also has taken this occasion to share worship together with Pentecostal Christians. Mm -hmm. So he's reached out ecumenically in some different directions, maybe than the church is known for in recent decades, including groups that have been kind of on the margins in some ways of the ecumenical movement. Well, I think that's I think that's right, and and of course you you have to realize that that one of the things that shapes liberation theology. Um, now I'm I'm not I don't mean to be associating Pope Francis with all every every book of liberation theology that ever came down the you know down the road. Because some of it's very problematic. Yeah, very very much so. very very problematic. So I'm, I'm I want to be careful about that, but. But I do think, though, that you got to remember that for liberation theology, things that Joseph Ratzinger cared mo most about, you know, would be um, doctrine. Would be, you know, we have to have access to the living, the living Jesus, you know, cognitively, you know, through our minds, so that we can know Him. And okay, that would be that would be what I think Joseph Ratzinger brought as Pope Benedict. But remember, for liberation theology, that's not the most important thing. And the most important thing is to go out and actually meet the people. And so that's so that's what he does. He, you could give him a book on ecclesiology, and and he would he probably set it aside and, and go out and share worship with the Pentecostals. <laughs> you know why not? You know. Yes, right. Yeah. Uh, so well, we're almost out of time. I wanted to ask you. Uh, this is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. A lot of festivities and commemorations and some lamentations, I guess, going on about this great event that in some ways uh, has produced a church still not fully united in visible unity in the West, Catholics and Protestants. You're a Catholic, I'm a Protestant. Uh, what would you say is the significance, the ecumenical significance of this 500th anniversary of the Reformation? Well, you know, one, one of the significance, I, I have to, you don't mind if I I take a lighter approach to this and, and plug a book that I did with Kevin Van Hooser. Yes. And it's coming out in September. And it's called Was the Reformation a Mistake? And the subtitle, not, not Kevin's subtitle, but my subtitle is um, Why Catholic Doctrine is Not Unbiblical. But really the key question is like, was the Reformation a mistake? And so it's being done with Zonervan. And you, you, you know Kevin, of course, he's oh, obviously yes. a close friend. But and he lives, we live in the same um, town there in Illinois. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he's one of a person. And, and so, um, you know, my view is that the Reformation, of course, is not, wasn't a mistake. And now there were, the main reason for that, as I see it, were the, the, essentially the two centuries of profound corruption. I mean, you can't hardly get a more corrupt, more corrupt church, especially in its leadership. I mean, in terms of the popular piety, I'm sure there were um, there were areas that were were thriving and and areas that were less less doing less well. 
but even even in areas of popular piety, I think there were there was some cause for concern. But but everybody recognizes that um, that that's the corruption of especially of Rome, especially of Rome. But in part because of all the the craziness going on in the Renaissance. Mm. So the moral the moral aspect, the church was morally corrupt. It it had to be renewed. So therefore, the Reformation couldn't have been a mistake. But but it's it's more than that, I think, because um, you know there just the the things that Martin Luther brought to the to the fore. Well, Scripture, you know, God's grace. You know, how how could I mean how could this be something that isn't crucial for all Christians? So I think that also was was important that that he was bringing these these things um, to the center, reminding us about the center. Center of our faith, and and also another factor is that this was part, in my view, this was part of the church's beginning to deal with um, what I call Renaissance historiography or Renaissance historical consciousness, mm. because in the Renaissance, and if you read Luther and Calvin, they they really saw this. In the Renaissance, the the, the study of history really got going, and so they began to to see that. Wait a second. You know, where did these seven sacraments come from, or where did this and this, and where did these doctrines? Now, of course, it leads it leads into historical criticism, and it leads into nineteenth-century um, questions. I'm talking about Renaissance historiography here, mm -hmm. but it's the beginning of that, and the Church had to begin to come to grips with these type of questions. These questions were crucial, and they weren't receiving answers, and they were, and no one was. No one was doing anything. So essentially, um, Eve Kangar um, often talks about the great theologian Eve Kangar, Catholic theologian. You know, would often just say that that you know the the church. I mean, in his view, in his view, if if only there had been some real renewal and real real reform in in the fifteenth century, then you wouldn't have had um, the re the reform that came in the sixteenth century cause a split. Mm -hmm. So that was his his thought, but anyway, so I, I see, I see um, many many good things about the Reformation, and I also, of course, I also see um, you know mistakes, and I and I see, I mean, I hate Christian division, mm. and it's it's not any of our faults. I mean, um, but of course, we all have to work to overcome it. And I, I see you you as a, a real model of someone who's devoted a lifetime to. To caring for the whole church and and for deeper unity, crucial. Thank you, Matt, and I'd say the same about you. And it's been a great privilege to work with you in the context of evangelicals and Catholics together and other venues. And it's been a great joy to have you today as our guest on the Beeson podcast. So thank you for this conversation. Uh, thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.